1: September 11, 2001 dawned crisp and blue in New York City. The gathering hum of a seemingly ordinary workday began taking shape in lower Manhattan. Then the ordinary was shattered by the extraordinary. At 8.46 a.m., a jet plane crashed into the 96th floor of the North Tower at the World Trade Center. As smoke poured from the top floors of the building, morning news programs, including NBC's Today Show, interrupted their regular programming and trained their cameras on the site, uncertain of what had occurred. Host Katie Couric.
2: We have a breaking news story to tell you about. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It happened just a few moments ago, apparently. We have very little information available at this point in time, but on the phone...
1: Media correspondents innocently suppose that the crash may have been an accident by an out-of-control private plane. But at 9.06 a.m., with cameras still aimed at the burning skyscraper, a second plane swooped into view, took dead aim, and exploded into the midsection at the second World Trade Tower.
2: Oh, another one just hit. It flew directly over my building. Can you see it? I can yes. see it on the shot. Oh, my. You know just, what? We just saw a plane circling the building. building.
1: We just saw a plane circling the building. And, and now you, you have to move from talk about a possible accident to talk about something deliberate.
2: It is completely impossible to understand why this is happening and to figure out what, the, what in the world is going on.
1: After another half-hour of confusion and conjecture came news of a third crash as another hijacked passenger jet slammed into the side of the Pentagon. Washington. Chris Plan, a CNN producer, is at the Pentagon where there is a significant fire. Chris, you're on the phone. Tell me what you know. Well, uh, arriving at the Pentagon a short time ago, uh, there was a uh, huge plume of smoke which continues to rise from the west side of the Pentagon. The building is currently being evacuated and... Uh, Police and emergency units are, of course, responding from uh, all around the building. The shocks kept coming. As firefighters worked frantically to evacuate New York's Twin Towers, 20,000 gallons of burning jet fuel turned each skyscraper into an inferno. Victims trapped at the top of the buildings were seen leaping to their deaths. Then at 9.59 a.m., the 110 floors of the South Tower Abruptly where of collapsed. Offices are located. Wow! And some Jamie, people were... Jamie, I need you to stop for a second. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising, and I can't. I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower. But you, there was a cascade of sparks and fire. A part of the south—that would be the south tower—has apparently collapsed. That is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. One half hour later, the second tower came crashing to earth, and a swirling cloud of dust and debris rose up to blot the sky. Good Lord, there are no words. You can see large pieces of the building falling, you can see the smoke rising, you can see a portion of the the side of the building now just being covered on the right side as I look at it, covered in smoke. This is just a horrific scene and a horrific moment. In an era of high-speed communications, news spread with lightning speed, even reaching passengers with cell phones aboard a fourth hijacked plane. Those passengers turned on their kidnappers, sacrificing their lives to save countless others when their plane crashed into an open field in western pennsylvania
2: united airlines ninety three this was a boeing seven fifty seven bound from newark new jersey to san francisco it crashed in somerset county pennsylvania near the town of shanksville it is not known how many passengers or crew were on board, although initial reports indicated uh, no survivors.
1: With compassionate and calm leadership, Mayor Rudy Giuliani and New York's Governor George Pataki guided the city through its darkest day.
0: My heart goes out to all of the innocent victims of this horrible and vicious act of terrorism, acts of terrorism, and our focus now has to be on saving as many lives as possible.
1: That night in his address from the Oval Office, President Bush urged the nation to band together to meet this challenge of terrorism while bearing the burdens of personal and collective sorrow. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed.
0: Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation.
1: Like the attack on Pearl Harbor, 60 years before, September 11, 2001 would be remembered as a day of sobering infamy, forever separating the world of what was from the world of what will be.
0: 22 years ago today, 2,977 victims uh, murdered by 19 hijackers in New York and in Washington and in a field in Pennsylvania. Um, There's an entire generation of people now in America and in the world that that were not alive when this happened or were too young to, to remember it. So for those of us who were around 22 years ago and do have memories of it, And one of the phrases that we heard in the immediate aftermath was, never forget. I kind of sometimes feel like we have, haven't we? Hey, so real quick, hurricane season is here. And this is your reminder to check your emergency supplies. You should have a three-day supply of food, water, and medicines, minimum. And Carolina Readiness Supply can help you get started or expand your supply. Food, water purifiers, lighting tools, first aid kits, instructional materials, camping and hiking supplies, too, because being prepared is just smart. Carolina Readiness Supply has 2,000 square feet of supplies and educational materials that you can use for any kind of emergency, whether you're an experienced prepper or you have no clue what you're doing, or maybe you're somewhere in between. Carolina Readiness Supply can help you in Waynesville and always at CarolinaReadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? It's the 22nd anniversary, and for 22 years, I've, or 21 years, I've been doing uh, these types of topics on mostly WBT. There was a brief timeout period where I was doing them up in Asheville as well. But I was here uh, working in the WBT newsroom uh, on September 11, 2001, although I had given my notice. I uh, tendered my resignation at that time. I gave him a month. Uh, I said I would work through the end of September while they fo- uh, found a replacement for me. And uh, I would got my insurance license. I was going to go sell uh, life and health insurance with a friend of mine who had gotten me uh, an in uh, at, a, at a company to start at the ground floor. I was you know dialing people for leads and that sort of thing on my uh, off hours from here. And um, mainly cause I saw no, no room for advancement for me. In the, in the newsroom, and I'd gone through my first review or something, and they were like, you know, you're not going to get more than, like, a 2% raise ever, 2 3% ever. And so I did the math on that, and I was like, I'm going to be 50 years old before I clear, I forget what the number was, like 40,000 or something like that. I said, this is not a long-term uh, viable plan. And so I gave my notice. Uh, and then 9-11 hit. I remember I was, because uh, usually on those days I was, doing the night shifts, uh, working in the evenings. And so in the mornings, I would get up and I would get ready and I would go in and do some of the side work for the insurance company and uh, saw that or heard on WBT, because I had the radio on, heard on WBT that the first uh, tower had been hit. And so I went and turned the television on and continued to get ready. And when I saw that second plane hit, uh, I called my friend at the insurance company. I was like, I'm, I'm not coming in today. I'm going to need to go into the office. And so I I came in here and, uh, you know, worked in, in the newsroom all day, although there was not a whole lot for us to do. But I remember being in the newsroom, watching the AP wires, watching the stories come down. And in the meantime, I was, um, you know, trying to get a hold of my dad, who worked across the street from the World Trade Center. And, of course, all the cell towers were down because the world trade center uh you know kept the the towers for all of these cell companies and such uh so when they came down a lot of comms went down and uh so you know trying to get a hold of dad for the better part of i guess uh, six hours or so uh he he made it out he was in a train that had stopped and he had uh, they sent him on to the next station, and a couple of years afterwards, I brought him on actually onto this uh, when I was on uh, in the uh, evenings from nine to midnight. Years later, like oh eight oh nine, it may have been when I was filling in on some uh, on somebody else's shift, and I brought Dad in. He was in town for some reason, I forget, and so we had him in, and and we talked about it. And um, I don't know what if we even have any records, any recording of that. I'm not sure if because. Uh, after I left here, um, apparently there was some sort of a hack and they hacked like all of the corporate radio ownerships, uh, systems and they destroyed all of their, their files. So they lost all sorts of audio. All of the, a lot of records were, uh, were deleted. Um, and I don't know any other details. I wasn't here at the time. I just heard about it at some point when I came back, um, And then after that, that was when uh, there was a a difference in uh, the way I viewed the job after that. And so I I did not quit, obviously. I did not leave WBT at that time in September of 2001. I stayed because I felt like the work was more important than I guess I had thought it was, especially in times of crisis. And honestly, that's really when... When radio serves its uh, objective best, always has. People turn to radio and they listen. They talk. Um, it's you know something that I think TV tries to replicate to some degree, but it it really can't. You know, but it has pictures, and and radio doesn't. So it you know it's just different. It's something that you know podcasts, uh, YouTube tries to replicate as well, but a lot of that's just uh, texts you know, chats and stuff, written word. So it's different. It's not the same. You get something different when you're actually talking to people and you can hear tone of voice and that sort of thing. So I stuck around. um, And so every year, I feel it important to mention, to discuss it, to never forget. Because we have now an entire generation that has no knowledge of this firsthand. And to try to convey what this what this meant for people who were alive that saw it, and, of course, people who died in the attacks. I don't know any way to describe it except to replay sound. And, you know, if you're TV, it's video. But to replay the sound from that day. It's the best way I can uh, think to to try to inform others that don't remember it or weren't born for it. I got a message here. It's a P-Tweet. From Ike-foo. 9/11 was when uh, or is why I started listening to WBT. I was already listening to Neil Bortz at night because of the jazz on that other station, like literally the jazz music. Right that morning, the station hadn't moved to live reporting yet, so I changed it over to WBT, and I have been here ever since. Let's go over here and take a phone call. This is Barbara. Welcome to the program, Barbara. How are you?
2: I am okay, and I thank you for taking my call. Sure. May we also remember the airplane crash in Charlotte, September 11, 1974, when several Charlotte people died. Uh, the plane crashed out there uh, in the Steel Creek area, and nobody seems to remember um that's all I ask, is to remember that also.
0: Did you know anybody on that plane?
2: Yes. A very close, a poker-playing friend.
0: <laughs> a poker-playing friend. What was their name?
2: Uh, Walt Norum, N-O-R-E-M, Walt Norum.
0: Coming back from Charleston? Yes. Yeah, and, we're on a, and then there was. it was supposed to go up to uh, Chicago.
2: Well, I don't know about that. All I know is that he was a friend. Thank you.
0: Yeah, that was flight, Eastern Airlines Flight 212, um, 1974, from uh, Charleston. It was on its way to Chicago, but it was making a stop in Charlotte, and it had uh, heavy, heavy fog. Um, And apparently, according to the reports, uh, the NTSB report afterwards, and that uh, rules uh, were implemented after this crash to have the pilots, everybody in the cockpit, uh, not talk about anything except flight-related, landing-related, and then they expanded it to takeoff-related uh, topics. Because the the pilot and co-pilot were talking about things that were not flight-related. They were just kind of chit-chatting. They were also looking for the, uh, the Carowinds Tower. That was like one of their... One of one of the the landmarks, one of the lights that they would look at, and they kept looking for that because they were flying. Uh, they were off instruments; they were just using like they were flying it themselves, and um, and they crashed. Uh, do you know who else was on that plane? There were seventy-two people who died. There was, and one of them was the. Uh, I was reading about this that one of them was the head of um, the medical university of South Carolina, uh, or vice president for academic affairs. Here it is. Medical University of South Carolina, James William Colbert, Jr., two of his sons also died in the flight. Um, and they were the father and the brothers of the future television personality, Stephen Colbert Colbert Stephen Colbert. those were oh, that was his that dad, was dad and his two brothers. <laughs> yeah. We were on that flight as well.
2: May I wish a happy birthday to somebody, even though it's such a tragic memory?: Yeah. My son Mark is 61 today, and he was 12 years old when the accident uh, occurred, and it has uh, affected him mentally uh, at that age. He was very impressionable, Sure. and it's kind of hung with him all these years. I yeah. thank you for taking my call. You're very nice.
0: Yes, ma'am. I appreciate your call. Thanks. Thank you for listening, Barbara. I appreciate you. All right. Take care. Um, no, that's the, this is the um, the trauma that people around the country and around the world, you know, that watch this occur. That we were all part of this this horror, right? Part of this tragedy. We were witnesses. We were bystanders. Um, we saw it happen. And in the days after, I know a lot of people. You know, talk about the. I mean, Glenn Beck did an entire uh, event organized around the day after nine twelve. I think he called it the nine twelve project or something like that. And the the point of it was that in the immediate aftermath, in fact, even before the day after, it was on nine eleven itself. I remember the the um, the video of people lining up around the corners for uh, f- to give blood, to go donate blood. All of the you know people that were you know they they went down to Ground Zero at the World Trade Center site. They went to the Pentagon. They went out to the fields. They tried to help, and they you know, and so that's one of the things that I uh, learned as well, which is you know, in the in the face of evil, and you see this tragedy, you see these things occur, it's very easy to get uh, depressed. It's easy uh, to become cynical. And to think that everybody is terrible and people are awful and all of this, but, um, you know, look for, I heard somebody say, look for the helpers. It restores your faith. It will will restore your faith in humanity. You look for the people who are trying to help, and they run towards the, uh, the horror. They run towards the tragedy. Now... One of the guys that was on duty at Ground Zero in the days after the attacks was a New York Police Department officer named Paul Morrow. And Morrow kept writing notes. He would jot down these notes and stuff them into his pockets, and he knew eventually he was going to write about it. Um, And he did. He did. And you can actually read this. It's at a website called opsdesk.org. Opsdesk.org. It's a very lengthy piece. I think it's an excerpt from him. He may have written a book about it. I I, I couldn't find anything about it, but it's a very lengthy piece. Um, And he talks about the volunteers. He says they came in droves, ragtag groups of them drifting up to the checkpoint, young men and women in their 20s, mostly yearning to do the right thing to help mitigate the devastation somehow. And clearly they're genuine. Their faces show it. Their shock and pain, concern and everything else you'd expect. But when told that there was really nothing for them to do at Ground Zero, they should report to the Javits Center where volunteer details are being organized and assigned. Most of them balked because they didn't want to walk all the way to 35th Street because the subways weren't running. So they camped out all over the place, all, over, all around Ground Zero, but primarily along the West Side Highway, sitting on the grass in little groups, turning the night of day one into a sort of crisis Woodstock. Late into the first night when we've been standing on the same corner for about 14 hours without being sure of what's to come next and what day we'll finally get home and of how completely our lives might be changed 2 studious looking young women separate from the volunteer army. They approach us tentatively on my lips is yet another demand that they get back behind the police lines and that if they want to help, they should go to the Javits center and stop hanging around to ogle the show. But the words catch in my throat and my alarm rises vaguely when I see one of them is gingerly carrying a box and she's on me before I can protest right up to me and my partner. And she asks in what I take to be some sort of a European exchange student lilt asked if we were hungry. And she tells us that she and her roommate were watching it all on TV and have made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And would we want one. And we did. We look into the box and we see that in each sandwich bag, there is a note in less than perfect English, with simple messages on them. Uh, Thank you for your bravery. God bless you. And he says, I have the first of what will be many moments familiar to all Americans by now when I find it difficult to speak. And he calls it, and apparently the cops down there called it, the cannot speaks. Is when you just get so overwhelmed, you cannot speak. All right. You may have noticed that I've been helping the Alzheimer's Association of Western North Carolina for a while, and it's a great organization. they got awesome people with huge hearts. My grandfather died of Alzheimer's when I was a kid, and back then there wasn't a lot of support for caregivers and family. Now, things are different today thanks to the work of the Alzheimer's Association. It's why I support them. Every year we do a series of walks all over the country. There are a bunch in the Carolinas. You can go to alz.org walk for a walk to end Alzheimer's near you. This month, there are walks in Hendersonville, Rock Hill, Mooresville, Greenville. And in October, we got Charlotte, Gastonia, Asheville, Kannapolis, Hickory, and Spartanburg. Go to alz.org for all of the dates and locations. We're closer than ever to stopping Alzheimer's, and we're asking if you can help us get there. Will you walk with me for a different future for families? For more time for treatments, this is why we walk. You
1: can hear firefighters that are still trapped crying. People walking around
0: like ghosts. We wandering days. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom
2: and no one will keep that light from shining. We're in the
1: of the some
0: Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. News talk 1110-993-WBT. New York Post's editorial board says that uh, today, you know, we retell the tales of the heroes, Todd Beamer and company charging the United 93 cockpit. Steven Siller's run from Brooklyn to the World Trade Center site. Rick Rescorla getting his 2,700 people out of the building when the attack he had long warned would come finally hit. And on the other hand, America answered 9-11 by invading Afghanistan, trying to liberate it from the regime that sheltered the Al-Qaeda attackers, which has now been handed back to the Taliban. Recall the shock when the first plane hit at 8.46, the second at 9.03? We all realized it was an attack on America even before the Pentagon got hit at 9.37. The front
1: tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. There are no words.
0: the nation united in sorrow and shock and resolution and for all of our divisions we are truly one people and for those who cannot remember we ask that you learn.